My name is Lawrence Rosenberg, and this is the Alpha Human Podcast. Our guest today is James Gagliano. James is a graduate of the United States Military Academy at West Point and served as an airborne infantry officer with the U.S. Army Rangers. Following his time in the military, James had a 25-year career with the FBI where he was an undercover agent investigating organized crime, a member of the FBI's legendary hostage rescue team, the Bureau's elite counterterrorism unit, where as part of the global war on terror, James deployed to Afghanistan on behalf of the FBI three times in support of Operation Enduring Freedom. James would also go on to be assigned as the senior team leader for the FBI New York Field Division's SWAT team. James currently serves as an analyst for CNN, where he provides on-air commentary on law enforcement and counter-terror matters, and is an adjunct assistant professor and doctoral candidate at St. John's University. Jim, welcome to the show. Lawrence, thanks for having me. I'll tell you, with a, with a wind-up like that, I want to meet <laughs> this guy, because I'm not nearly hey, that cool. So Hey, hey listen, man, I, you know... There's stuff I left off the resume. Uh, I could. <laughs> you got you're very, you're very kind, my friend. Well, uh, it's an absolute pleasure uh, to have you on the show, and uh, I want to, I want to really dig into uh, some key areas of your story and your expertise. But you know, I'd like to start with kind of some of your motivation um, for getting into what you got into, um, because I speak. Look, I speak to a lot of special operators, Jimmy. Um, you know, SEAL teams, uh, Delta, uh, Rangers, I I speak to a lot of guys and, you know, they all had, you know, at some point, you know, someone, they were really young, someone, they were teenagers, they got it in their heads. A lot of them after 9-11 got in their heads that, you know, they're going, they want to become a SEAL. They want to become Delta. They want to, they want to join the army Rangers. Right. What about you? Um, what was your, you know, what led you to attend West Point, um, you know, an, an elite school, uh, uh, speaking of the military or, or any for that matter, uh, and then later on going to the, uh, to the Rangers? What, what was the, you know, what was the thinking behind that? Well, first of all, Lawrence, thanks for having me. And I know we had, uh, I know we had a few snags because uh, we got hit with a little bit of weather up here a week or so ago, and we had to reschedule yes, yeah. this, the uh, Hurricane, I think Isaiah was the one that moved up the, the East Coast and hit us pretty hard, believe it or not, in upstate New York. It's, it's not like what, obviously, what Texas and Louisiana are dealing with. But I, I appreciate your patience and looking forward to this. Um, yeah, I, I, I like these kind of deep dives. And, and, and certainly, um, you know, I know people listen to these things and I know young people listen to these things. And, mm-hmm. and, and sometimes it's, it's a small thing that becomes a catalyst for somebody. And, and look, you know, I didn't have heroes growing up that were comic book characters or, you know, movie stars or professional athletes. You know, I had a hero that, you know, lived in my own home. My father is West Point class in 1960. He's a second generation Sicilian American, you know, grew up in the deep south in Birmingham, Alabama as a, as a swarthy Mediterranean with a funny last name and oily skin. And, um, my dad really is, was my inspiration. And so growing up, I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, I had him to look at. He was West Point class in 1960. 
mm-hmm. um, who was a Vietnam vet, spent parts of 67 and uh, 66 and 67 in, in the Republic of, in, in South Vietnam, and um, really was the guy that, you know, I looked at and said, I want to be like him. Now, our past diverged. My father was much more of a cerebral intellectual. He okay. graduated at the top 5% of his West Point class. I graduated at the bottom 5% of my <laughs> West Point class. So for your listeners to understand what you're paying me, if you want the top 5% of West Point class, you're going to have to pay him a lot more than you're paying me. Right. So my, my, no, in all kidding aside, my dad was really my inspiration, I think. Um, and growing up, I was a gangly, gawky, um, you know, goofy kid um, that was kind of on the, on, the, on the outside looking in. I was not one of the cool kids. And okay. I always thought about what it would be like to reach that level or that status of doing good and protecting the innocent and, and being not just a physical, but being a presence, um, you know, defending my country and, and, and protecting things that were important to all of us. And really, I was a late bloomer and a late developer. I, I, was, I was lucky to be able to get into West Point. Um, when I graduated from West Point, I, I knew I wanted to go into the infantry. I knew I wanted to be an airborne ranger. I served four years in the, in the 10th Mountain Division. And it's funny, and I'll wrap this up quickly by saying, you know, I served at the height of the Cold War. I was at the United States Military Academy from 1983 to 1987. Okay. I served in the United States Army from 1987 to 1991. And I left to join the FBI, which I'm sure we'll talk about later, yep. right at the cusp of the first Gulf War. So I missed the first Gulf War, was already in the FBI. And then I spent far more time overseas in the sandbox, in the Middle East, in Africa, in harm's way with the FBI attached to military units than I ever did when I was in the military at the height of the Cold War, Lawrence. It's amazing. Um, You would ever thought, you know, it's, it's, a lot of guys that joined up uh, prior to, you know, in between actually uh, Gulf War One and Two, um, you know, there were only real, a, a, a lot of the special operators, um, they really didn't see a lot of action. It was really only in between those two, there was, there was Panama, right? And there was uh, uh, maybe Grenada or maybe, yeah, right? That, w- that was really it. That's yeah. where the action was. And other than that, you had all these um, highly trained guys like you uh, that were pretty much sitting on their ass. They weren't, they weren't getting that opportunity. Uh, and so it's funny that you ended up getting far more uh, chances to go and uh, do some really dangerous work when you were with the FBI. Who would have thought, um, but you end up over there with the FBI. So thanks, thanks for um, uh, elucidating on that. So let's get, it, let's get into that because, you know, you, you end up, going into or joining the FBI with the ambition to work organized crime, right? And I'm curious, like, um, what was your motivation for wanting to be assigned to investigating organized crime? There's a lot you could be doing with the FBI. It's like my daughter, um, you know, and she's young, she's 20. So right now she doesn't know what she wants to do. But one of the things that has popped into her head as of late is FBI. And she's taking criminology courses. And for her, She's, she wants to do something where she can help stop uh, human trafficking. That's, that's what she's focused on, right? You're, you're, you're focused on organized crime. That was your ambition. Why? What was your, what was your inspiration for that? Sure. So first of all, to piggyback on what you just said, 
um, you know, Grenada happened while I was a kid at the United States Military Academy. And then when I became an infantry officer, um, the operation in Panama took place where we took out, you know, Manuel Noriega um, mm. and, and took back the airfield and, and rescued some American students there um, while I was in the military. But these were small operations, you know, these, you know, we weren't, it, it wasn't like, it wasn't like anything else our country, you know, it wasn't World War One or World War Two or the Korean War or right. Vietnam. These were, these were small, you know, small level, low level, I don't want to say low level, like there's no danger, but these were, these were dealing with insurgencies and, and, and things like that, right. but in small scale. I mean, obviously the United States did a lot of proxy wars after World War Two, where, you know, we supported you know, democracies in, in the Far East, or we supported dem anybody that was counter to the Soviet Union at the time. So my fear was in the military, and I had a, a wondrous career, and it was short, it was four years. Um, okay. I left as, as first lieutenant promotable. Um, my, my fear was that I wasn't going to see the action because it was the height of the Cold War. And I just didn't see us being involved and engaged. And, and you know, I think Robert E. Lee famously said, you know, um, it's it's wonderful that war is so bad, lest we grow too fond of it. And so I'm not right. I'm not suggesting that you know everybody wants to, to 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 go to war, but when you are a soldier and you're in a professional unit and you're and you're with meat eaters and 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 folks that are committed to you know defending freedom and being on the vanguard, you are itching to to put your skills to test. And so yeah. I looked at what was going on domestically and thought that there would be other opportunities there. The reason why, as you suggest, that, that I, I, I moved towards the organized crime side, I was a cadet in 1985 when John Gotti, who was the, uh, 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 he was basically a capo or a captain in the Gambino crime family, one of the five families in New York. Mm -hmm. John Gotti had Paul Castellano, who was the boss of the Gambino family, snuffed out in a, in a brazen hit, you mm. know, in the evening hours. Um, you know, at Spark Steakhouse. I was fascinated by that. I read a number of books on it. And a book came out right around that time, 1986, 1987, written by an FBI agent by the name of Joe Pistone. And Joe ah. Pistone played Donnie Brasco, which was his undercover right. know, nom de guerre, if you will. And so I read that book and I was hooked. And right around the same time in 1987, and now I don't want to name drop, but this guy is a personal friend of mine because I wrote an article about it. But Ken Wall, an actor, was portraying Vinnie Terranova on this on this television series called Wise Guy. And Wise I Guy. It. Wow. And I and and I wanted to be that guy. I, I told I told Ken recently and he was blown away. I'm like, dude, I became an FBI agent and wanted to go into organized crime because I watched your TV show and said what you did going undercover in the mob was what I wanted to do. And there was a reason for it. My family is, they're Sicilian American immigrants. I'm third generation, but I understand what the mob did and how the mob took advantage of and extorted and used violence and intimidation to take advantage of new immigrants. And I understood what a, what a plague they were. And I thought it'd be really neat to work against that. And so that's what initially drew me to it. I'll tell you what, wow, wise guy, that brings back memories. Yeah. Um, you know, we're probably about the same age. And um, that show was like really, I mean, it was critically acclaimed. Uh, and Ken Wall was like, a, like, I don't know if anyone now, you know, poor guy knows, knows his name. Um, but he was like a megastar for a while. He burned white hot. And it was a great, 
great, great show. So, um, yeah, that's cool. So that inspires you, right? Yeah. And I also remember the hit on Castellano in his, you know, at uh, Sparks. Um, I remember on the New York Post, um, the, the, you know, I think they had a cover shot of like the, I think the, um, uh, the bodyguard in the car slumped over. Right? Tommy, Bel- Tommy Bellotti. Okay. Wow. Unbelievable. So, okay. So that's, that's the, the motivator that gets you into it. And, um, so you end up, um, you end up joining a, um, a group within the FBI called squad C 16. Okay. What was squad C 16? Wow. So, you know, timing is everything. And, uh, I'm sure there's probably a lot of listeners to your podcast that, uh, that, that watch Netflix. I think Netflix is more ubiquitous right now than regular cable TV. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's a series on Netflix, and I don't get any royalties from it, so this isn't me shilling for you know, a paycheck, yeah. but there's a, a series on there called Fear City that just, that just came out. I think it debuted yeah. a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating, and it is literally it leads up to me entering the FBI. When I say me, it's not about me, okay. but it is about the late seventies and the 1980s and how the FBI attacked organized crime in New York city. So all the guys that they interview on there from Linda Vecchio to Tommy French to Jay Bruce Mao, who was my supervisor on C16, mm-hmm. um, Joe Canamessa, who put the bug into Paul Castellano's house, the, the guys that made the commission case, which was the big case against the five bosses of right. the, the ruling La Cosa Nostra families in New York, that three, I think it's three episode series really kind of distills down where the Bureau was in trying to figure out how we're going to go after the mob. And as, and as I'm sure your listeners know, um, the Bureau and law enforcement struggled with figuring out how to get to the people at the upper echelon because you can arrest people that are directed to do things for doing criminal mm-hmm. acts, whether it's extortion, shakedowns, murders, you know, vice crimes like prostitution or gambling, running numbers, those kind of things. But how did you get to the people at the top? And RICO, the Racketeering Influence Corrupt Organizations Act, which mm-hmm. came around in the early 1970s, was what the Bureau and the Department of Justice were able to successfully use in the 1980s to attack the mob. I arrived in New York in May of 1991. John Gotti had been arrested in December of 1990, but I was still involved in working the case from the perspective of preparing for it. And shortly after I got to the squad, C-16, which was located in a small resident agency that the Bureau had out in Queens, New York, in Regal Park, Queens, was the turning of state's evidence of one Salvatore Sammy the Bull Gravano. And so my first introduction to the mob was my boss calling me in, Jay Bruce Mao, who's in Fear City. Okay. saying, Jimmy, you got nothing going on right now because you're a new kid and you don't know your ass from a hole in the ground. We're going to send you to a safe house for a few months and you're going to live with Sammy the Bull Gravano while we're working the case and you're going to babysit him so that we can do all the behind the scenes work. So it was really an introduction for me on what the mob was and, and getting into the side, the mind of a gangster. So it was an unbelievably great experience, Lawrence. Wow. So, okay. So, you know, you want to work organized crime, you get, um, you, you get assigned to this squad C 16, which is just getting formed up. Um, 
They're going after the, you know, the, the mm-hmm. five families and the boss, you know, the capo de tutti capis, right? And, you know, you, you go to spend months uh, as a handler for essentially Sammy the Bull Gravano. I mean, you talk about an opportunity to learn about organized crime and, you know, to kind of understand it from the inside, not from the FBI's point of view, right? Why you couldn't have asked for a a better classroom than uh, to be part of Sammy the Bull holding court on organized crime. What did you learn from him in in all that time that that you must have spent hanging out with, uh, with the Bull? So I was 26 years old and Sammy had just turned 40. I thought at the time that 40 was ancient. I've now adjusted what I consider to be ancient in terms of age. But at the time, Sammy was a tough guy. And I think one of the things that I learned about criminal enterprise, and and, and look, at the time, this is the early 1990s, you know, the Italian La Cosa Nostra, this thing of ours, uh, organized crime, was at its apex. And the reason it was at its apex, because it was sophistication and violence conjoined. So Mm. it's one thing to run a violent street gang, right? You do it through fear, intimidation, you know, we'll shoot more of your guys than you'll shoot of ours. The Mexican drug cartels, the Jamaican drug posses. It's another thing that the Italians really had cornered the market on in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, which was getting into politicians' pockets getting into the labor unions. They had a level of sophistication, didn't make it any less thuggery, didn't Mm -hmm. make it any more palatable or any more righteous, but they were just more sophisticated. So in in basically spending three months with the bull, um, it it was just for me, I mean, young kid, grew up in the deep South. Yes, we shared a, you know, an an ethnic, you know, Italian last name, Mm -hmm. but it really was a it really was a, a a tutorial in just spending time with them. We worked out together, um, we talked, we you know we cooked together, we did a lot of things together, and just learning about that. And here's one of the things that I had as a big takeaway, Lawrence. Okay. You know, leadership is a big thing. You know, you go to West Point. Leadership is it's the it's the paramount leadership institution. We often mistakenly believe that leaders are only good people. Leaders can be bad people. Saddam Hussein was a leader. Hitler was a leader. Sammy the Bull Gravano was a good leader. Doesn't mean good person. Right. The fact that they had the ability to get other people to do things that they wanted done, there's leadership there. And Sammy was a leader. He was a likable guy. And look, he had done horrible things. He had 19 murders under his belt. He didn't kill 19 people, but he he participated in luring somebody to a hit or disposing of a body in our system of justice that's still you're still guilty of a homicide so we've been involved in 19 homicides but when you spend time with somebody that close you learn a lot about them and you learn about how people even on the other side of the law people that we look at and we eschew because they are bad people how they can still attract a following and Mm -hmm. convince people that what they're doing is being part of something bigger than themselves in their noble or ignoble cause. So that was something I think I learned, Lawrence, from being around him. Wow. Um, you know, I've, I've read his uh, bio. I read his book when it came out in the, uh, 
come out in the it came out in the '90s, I think, the late '90s. Uh, yeah, yeah, it came out in the late '90s. I read I read his book. I've watched a number of interviews with him, and he seems like a very engaging individual. Um, he ran clearly a very successful business. Um, he was, you know, he was he was earning a lot of legitimate money uh, for the mob for Gotti, hundreds and hundreds of millions. Um, did, uh, but I'm curious, your one-to-one -one impression of him. Uh, so, I mean, he, he must've pulled the trigger on a few people. Doesn't have to be the whole 19, but he certainly, you know, to make his bones, I think, you know, he, he probably had a, and I can't remember, but um, I'm sure he participated in a few uh, assassinations or executions, whatever you want to call them. Did he strike you as um, a sociopath? So it, you, you mentioned the 19 murders. So he actually was the trigger man on one. And again, oh, okay. and I know, and I know your, your, your listeners are, are in tune to this kind of stuff. You can be guilty of a homicide and drive the getaway car. You can, right. be, you can be guilty of a homicide if you dispose of a body. You can be guilty of a homicide if you um, lead somebody into a, a, you know, ensnare them into coming to a place where you know they're going to be executed, assassinated, or murdered. So he actually pulled the trigger on one, but he's still guilty of 19 homicides. You ask if he's a sociopath. I think that to, to take a human life um, with depraved indifference, um, I think you have to be. I think that, that sociopaths um, um, have those certain qualities where they are able to subjugate their conscience. Most human beings were imbued with a conscience. We tell a lie, if we tell a lie, we feel bad about it. We feel compelled to, to, you know, to fix it. If we do something wrong, we feel bad about it. If we, if we aggrieve somebody else or, or hurt somebody else or injure somebody else, we're affected by it. We have a conscience. I think with sociopaths, they don't. And I think that is something that the mob and not just the Italian mob, but also criminal organizations or criminal enterprises writ large, they're imbued with people. They are staffed by people that are able to put that to the side. They're able to drive that part of the human, the human, uh, you know, the, the human experience that is a sense of right and wrong or a sense of guilt and innocence or a sense of not wanting to hurt the least of us. Right. They're, they're able to put that to the side. And the way it is with the Italian mob, if it's for business purposes, it's okay. Now we don't do things just wantonly. We, there's always a specific purpose but in their mind, they justify something that the rest of civil society looks at and says, but it's still murder. Right. You know, um, thinking about it, there, there's also a difference between sociopaths and psychopaths, right? So psychopaths are more high functioning. Sociopaths act on impulse. Psychopaths can control their impulses. They look quite normal. They're often in leadership roles. Um, uh, you know, in listening to Sammy the Bull, um, I think you know, perhaps he, you know, might, he may not have been either um, merely because of the fact that the justification is what you said. I think the way he looked at it, um, and I'm sure there are proper sociopaths, you know, in these criminal gangs and in these mafias, for sure. I mean, you know, the, these are the guys that are, you know, um, doing brutal, brutal shit. But um, they justify, or Sammy uh, the Bull, 
justifies it as, hey, you're in this thing of ours, this, and if you do, if you are in this, then, hey, you live with the consequences. No one forced you to be involved in this and break the code. So it's, it's that, so there's a justification that takes place, but you had, you, you got to work out with this guy. You got to uh, have dinner with this guy, spent months with him. So now, I mean, you're, as I understand your background, you're, you're now itching after a while, you're itching to go undercover. You know, you're, you kind of understand the psyche of um, a, a soldier, a mobster, a capo, all these things. And like, you know, you think for yourself, hey, it's time for you to go deeper and go undercover. And I, for one thing I do want to say um, is that being from the South, you got a hell of a New York accent. So, <laughs> so, so you, maybe the training. I don't... You'd never know that I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, actually in Decatur, Georgia, which is on the east side of Atlanta. I go home for high school reunions or I go talk to people that, you know, I grew up with and they're like, what the hell happened to you? But I've spent <laughs> most of my adult life in New York and I just adopted the New York accent. So I don't think I have an accent, but they think I sound like I come from Brooklyn. Hey, let me tell you something. You, you've got, you've got that, you've got that New York accent. You've got that New York hustle, Brooklyn for sure. Um, so, so you were sent to something called the undercover and sensitive operations unit. Yep. Uh, the OSOU, I'm sorry, the USOU. USOU. What is the USOU? So the way undercover works in the FBI, and, and it does in, in, in most law enforcement agencies, I can only really speak to it from the FBI perspective or the NYPD perspective because I worked hand in glove with the NYPD for 20 of my 25 years. So I'm a little bit familiar with how they do things too. Okay. At the federal level, we take it very seriously, obviously. It is a, it is a difficult job. It is a perilous job and it is a hell of a lot of fun. You get to lie and do it under the auspices of the government and do it for righteousness. I mean, it is the best thing. You get to pretend you're somebody you're not. I'm not Robert De Niro. Nobody's chasing me down asking me to star in the, the remake of The Godfather Part Two, but I can play a role to get close to somebody that we have reasonable suspicion, which has moved or morphed into probable cause, is in the conduct of illegal activities or violation of federal law. And I get to befriend that person and use my considerable charms, my you know savvy, my expertise in this arena to pretend to be somebody I'm not. And I say that and, and, and I'm, making it, I'm making it light about it. But again, it is a dangerous job. And it's also a job that you take seriously because you do recognize, and there are dangers that are inherent in this line of work, which is one of the things that USOU looks out for. One are things right up here. You know, you can be good with the fists, you can be handy with the steel, but if you're not right up here, this is a game of chess, but it's not regular chess, it's nine dimensional chess. You're thinking 10 steps ahead of the bad guy. You're trying to act like a bad guy. You're trying to be careful not to entrap somebody, which means not offer or dangle something in the criminal realm that they wouldn't be normally predisposed to doing, but you still want to get them on what you know they are doing illegally. So 
it's a it's a delicate dance. Um, as I said, you got to be right up top here, and you also have to be careful because we started this off by talking about Sammy Gravano. I became friendly with Sammy. Now, you know, we came from different sides of the world. We came from different sides of the law, but you can't be around somebody that long. And I think James Comey, the former FBI director, once famously said, it's impossible to hate up close. And I've become friendly with, with gangbangers that I sent to jail. I've become friendly with drug dealers and drug traffickers I've sent to jail. And I've become friendly with mafia members I've sent to jail because most of them, not all of them, recognize that their job is to break the law and get away with it. Our job on the other side is to catch them and then prove it because knowing they did it doesn't matter. You have to be able to prove it with evidence and you have to be able to afford them due process while you're doing it. So from the undercover perspective, it's a delicate dance. You're trying to make sure that you maintain boundaries, but that you're still able to do what you need to do. But at the end of the day, you just want to help make the case. Wow. So, um, so a couple of questions come out of that. The, f the first is, um, so is there, again, for the non-sociopaths, right, amongst the, the criminal element, um, for, you know, for the, for the guys that are just, have chosen this as a career, right? Um, their job is to, you know, is to break the law. Your job is to prove, you know, catch them and prove that they did it. Is there, so is there that kind of like unwritten respect for each other wor working undercover like that? And once you've got them, uh, you may have been working with them for six months, a year, you've gotten very close to them. Um, you're friends with them. They, you send them to jail, but at the same time, you, you still have a relationship. You're still friends with these guys. You know, well, I'm cautious in, 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 the, in using the term friends. I mean, you are acquaintances. Right. There is a begrudging respect there. Now, look, initially, the first reaction from people that you have worked an undercover case against, it is abject betrayal. It's a betrayal as if you cheated on your wife. It's right. a betrayal as if you were buddies with somebody and then you did something to make their life worse or, or did something to hurt their business. It, it, it is a sense of betrayal. I think that they go through, you know, what is it, the five stages of grief before they come around to the acceptance phase. So okay. they have to work through those things. But the mafia guys, most of them understood that that was our job. And they were also, too, hands off on trying to hurt somebody. Look, if you were one of them and you did something out of line or you ratted or snitched the words that they use, you know, they put a contract out on you. On the, on the law enforcement end, it was a little different. Now, look, I'm sure many of your listeners have, have seen Donnie Brasco, the movie, you know, and you've got yeah. Johnny Depp playing Joe Pistone as Donnie Brasco. And then you've got, you know, um, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Al Pacino playing. Um, That's right. Playing is it Sonny Black. I think it was, it was a character there. In that case, I mean, you know, once the betrayal happened and once, you know, the Bureau pulled out, you know, uh, uh, Joe Pistone. There were a number of people in the mob that had introduced Joe Pistone as Donnie Brasco into the mob that were killed as a result of that, right. meaning it brought somebody in that was a Fed. So serious business. You don't take it lightly. I mean, it's definitely a dangerous business, but it is a cat and mouse game. As I said before, it literally is nine-dimensional chess, trying to think two or three or ten steps ahead of the bad guys. So, okay. Right. And then, 
on your side of the fence, you get really close to these guys, you, you know, they take you into their confidence. Um, then you end up having to betray them. Mm-hmm. Do you ever feel bad? Do you feel you guilty? Know, it's, I think it's, I think it is part of the human condition. I mean, I don't, you know, I never knew law enforcement officers and I know right now our country is riven right now. There's a vast divide over, you know, the one side that, you know, believes that, you know, all cops are bad, all cops are bastards, a cab. And, you know, we've got to defund the police and abolish the police. And then the other side and the other side sometimes is, well, cops never make mistakes and every police shooting is a righteous shooting. And you know what? The truth and where we need to get ourselves as a, as a community and as a, as a nation probably lies somewhere in the middle. We need, we need police reform. We don't need what, what, what's going on right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the most important things that I learned along the way was the, the, the ability to humanize the people that you were investigating. And you don't humanize them to the point where you become so utterly attached to them that you don't want to do your job. But at the same time, you can feel bad for people. You can have empathy, not sympathy, but you can have empathy for people. You can understand what they're going through. You can understand that maybe, maybe the, the, the childhood experiences of one of the targets of my investigation didn't grow up in the two-parent household that I did where my father broke a boot off in my ass if I got out of line. My mother made sure there were three square meals on the, on the table, and my parents had a functioning, loving, committed relationship so they could be an example to me. My upbringing was different. I didn't grow up in privilege by any stretch. I grew up in an African-American community. I was an outsider. Right. But the bottom line was, I was given opportunities and I had people that made sure they looked out for me that sometimes the targets of our investigations, whether they're, you know, mafia members or whether or not they're a young African-American slinging crack for the bloods on the corner of walk and don't walk in some, you know, urban area, they may not have had the same opportunity. So there's no reveling in it. There was no, there was never any popping of corks. There was never any celebration. It was the grim reality of this is the job that, that I'm sworn to do. Right. I'm going to follow my oath and I'm going to uphold it, but I don't have to revel in it. It's, it's not an easy job to, to pat yourself on the back and say, even though I took a bad guy off the street and I know the streets are safer, that person's a human too. And their lives and the lives of their family and friends and people in their circle have been irrevocably turned upside down. Well, yep. Okay. So to be able to pull that off, um, you know, you've got to be like Johnny Depp, right? Playing Donnie, you know, playing uh, Donnie Brasco. Without without the hair and the good looks, of course. (laughs) Whatever it may be. (laughs) But um, you actually might have to be a better actor. Uh, because you're playing not for an Academy Award, you're playing for your life. And um, does the, so the USOU, do they teach you those skills? I mean, is it, or is it just like, you know, this has got to be a natural thing? Well, 
firstly, you know, when you go through FBI undercover training, it's a two week course, or at least it was back then. Okay. It's a two week course. You can't teach every somebody everything you need to know about it. And look, they do a great job. They bring in guys that have have been there, done that, got the t-shirt. They talk about all the travails and the possible pitfalls, the things to avoid. Don't get too close to a, a target. Make sure you're careful here. Don't drink too much. You know, you have to do it socially because you're in a setting. You have to act normal, but keep your wits about you. But the bottom line was, it's the same thing I say to young kids when I talk to, you know, groups at the Boys and Girls Club or places like that. And they, the kids are, they always want to know, well, how many people did you shoot? How many people did you kill? And I say, in my entire 25-year career in the FBI, and I'll even include my military career, eight years including the academy, so 33 years, there were far more situations that I was able to ameliorate or, or de-escalate or impact by using these and these and this, two ears, two eyes, and a mouth, by being able to talk to people. Mm -hmm. Communication and communication skills are so critical to your success as an under undercover and your success in life. We're on a podcast right now. So we're, we're two-dimensional images and we're audio. Mm. But for somebody who's watching this right now, even though it's in a flat two-dimensional medium, right this this is what they're intuiting right 55 percent of what they see right now from me is body language how i carry myself how i make a point how my presence right 38 percent is my tone and seven percent is the words that i use now if the math works out 55 38 and 7 which i believe it does it just proves a point that Body language and presence are so critical to human, human connection, human communication. And it's something that in the police business, especially we're talking about police reforms, how we engage with urban communities or communities of color or communities that, that historically have a distrust of police. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing with undercover work. It's communication, how you talk to people. Do you make eye contact with them? Do they feel like you're there in that moment? Do they feel connected? And in police work, which means engaging with people that have done something wrong and you have to deprive them of their liberty and bring them to, to, to meet justice, or in undercover work, where you're trying to talk to somebody and bring them into your confidence or hope they bring you into theirs, mm -hmm. it's the same thing. It's relationships, relationships building, and communication skills. Okay. So, you know, cause I could just imagine someone thinks they can do the job and, you know, they go, they go undercover and clearly they're not cut out for it. Um, there's, there's gotta be like, um, someone saying this, this guy, he ain't going to make it. He's not, he's not cut out for this. What, uh, you know, do they, do they, does the USOU or does the FBI have any kind of like filtering process for this? Sure. So there, there is a testing process. Part of it is psychological. So, um, you know, you can take written tests about, you know, how would you act in this instance? You know, you go in to make a drug buy and a drug dealer puts a gun up against your head and says, I need to know if you're a cop. Here's a line of coke. If you're a cop, you're not going to snort it. Do it. And you're like, I'm a snorting mofo. I'm going <laughs> to snort whatever's in front of me. Now, 
So you go through all that lessons learned. How would you act in this situation? And then the second week generally mm -hmm. is made up of two things, practical application or practical experiences, which means you're going to do things in the experiential realm. So okay. they're going to tell you, hey, here's your role. Here's your target. You're going to meet your target uh, at the corner of walk and don't walk in this little seedy saloon. You'll recognize him. He's got a handlebar mustache. He's a white male, 40 years old with a slight paunch. He'll see you at the south end of the bar. That will be an undercover agent. You'll go meet him and you will go through whatever the scenario is and you will get graded on that. Now, it's not just one person grading you. It's not just one scenario. Then the second part of the second week is also the psychologicals because you will take tests and look, I'm not a psychologist. I don't know what's going on up in this head, but they ask you a bunch of questions. They ask you a voluminous amount of questions. They ask you the same questions in slightly different ways. So you can't beat the test and they make you do it over the course of three quarters of a day. So if you think you're gonna outsmart it, you can't. So those are the three things. Yes, you have, the, have, to, have to have the, the education about how these things are done. Here's some, here's some best practices and how we do things. Okay. You've gotta do practical experience, experientials, and then you've also gotta take the psychological. Now, that means that you're a base level undercover. But the base level undercover, which are important and they do God's work, yeah. they're not the great ones. And there were some, and some that I worked under, like Jack Garcia, who wrote a great book called Making Jack Falcone, who's a Cuban-American who I worked with on C-13, um, a drug squad back in the mid-90s. Jack was one of the greatest undercovers ever. He could play, first of all, he spoke Spanish beautifully, but he also played Italians. He could do whatever you needed, and he could just morph seamlessly into these different characters. Jack's at a different level. I wasn't there. I thought I was pretty damn good, but okay. I wasn't a Jack. But it all comes down to how much you like to engage people, how much of a gift of gab or bullshit, if I can say that on your podcast, yes. if, if you've got the gift of BS, if you're able to do that, and just communicating with people, and then going in with a game plan, and then being able to react to what the circumstances are when you get there. Because there's a very famous saying that say, the best plans never survive first contact with the enemy. And that's the thing. Or do you have that ability to adjust when the situation around you changes? That's what the best undercovers can do. So uh, like Mike Tyson said, um, everyone's got a plan. Until so they get hit in the face. <laughs> Love that. Yep. Uh, excellent. So um, what, uh, what were some of the roles, undercover roles you played? Who, you know, who, who were you? So, you know, I'd love to say that I was like a really small, smart guy that worked Wall Street and, you know, and, and worked insider stock trading and, and, you know, healthcare fraud and things like that. I wasn't. You, you always wanted to stay close you wanted your, your, your persona, your undercover um, uh, character to be as close to real as possible. Okay. I, gradu I graduated the bottom of my West Point class. So I always played a dumb guy. And it was easy for me to do. There wasn't much acting. And so I never tried to be too smart. Okay. I always used the military as my backstopping. 
because it was something that I could speak to. I could say, I did serve at Fort Bragg. And yeah, I was in a weapons battalion. And I did spend time over here or time over here. And I did have this, you know, uh, this badge, this expert marksmanship badge and this qualification and this certification. So you keep it as close to possible to what you know. Um, you don't build off of that. You usually keep your first name the same because okay. the problem, Lawrence, is this. If your undercover name is, uh, you know, uh, something like uh, Roberto, and I yell Roberto, and you don't look up, and then I go, why isn't he answering? And it's because you're used to answering to Lawrence. You keep your first name the same, you pick your own last name, and you keep as many things about your, your pedigree, your personal life, as close to real as possible. Interesting. Very interesting. Um, okay. So organized crime is uh, not just about the, uh, the La Cosa Nostra, the mafias, a far bigger issue. And one that you've become dedicated to uh, having an impact on is gang crime. Um, you, for instance, as I understand it, headed up a multi-agency federal gang task force that took down 78 members of the Bloods and the Latin Kings in Newburgh, New York, which by the way, most people are probably completely unaware that it's the murder capital of New York, right? <laughs> per capita, I think, right? 29,000 population. But um, how are gangs, street gangs, how are they similar to the mafia? Um, but also, how big is the gang problem in the USA? Well, I, I, I think that that is amorphous, meaning that that, that changes. And what do we do in the government or what do we do in law enforcement? We see a problem, we play whack-a-mole, right? We okay. throw a bunch of resources at it, we stamp it down, and then the problem pops back up over here. And then we chase that, right? Okay. So one of the things that, that I saw as a, a stratagem was, and this is going back to 2008 when I was posted up to Newburgh, New York, as you pointed out at the time, it was per capita, the, the you know, the murder capital of New York state was the success that we had militarily in Afghanistan and Iraq with the surge strategy, meaning you put the resources in your area of operation, your area of responsibility, your AOR, you put the resources where they're needed. Now the NYPD was way ahead of us, right? They did that with CompStat back in the early days of, of Bratton and Jack Maple back in the early nineties under Rudy Giuliani, when they said, Hey, why are, we, why are we covering the entire five boroughs with an equal application of police resources? Here's where crime is. Here's where crime is. Here's where crime is. Let's put more resources there. Let's pull them from places that aren't historically challenged by violent crime. Mm -hmm. And let's try to attack that. That's what we did in Newburgh. Now, one of the things, and I think it's more applicable today than it was even back then was, I was not considered an outsider in Newburgh because I had lived close by. I had been in the community for 15 going on 20 years. I had coached at the boys and girls club. I knew a lot of the young men. I had coached them. Even some of the ones that ended up in the gangs because the bottom line, whether it's the mafia, whether it's the bloods or Latin Kings or IBM or the FBI or CNN, we all want to be part of something bigger than ourselves. So right. the young men that saw no outlet in Newburgh 
you know, even the ones that you could provide as much guidance to and as much mentorship to that went into the gangs. In 2008, it was a pivotal period of time. There were two street gangs, one that owned the west side of Newburgh and one that owned the east side of Newburgh, and they were at war. Well, people will chalk it up and say, well, it's a victimless crime if it's just two gangbangers shooting at each other. But innocent people were also being caught in the crossfire. And so one of the things that we did was we used that surge strategy. I was able to get resources from the Department of Justice and from the FBI because I lived up here. So people knew that I knew what I was talking about. And I had what I call traction in the community, which meant people trusted me. It wasn't an outsider that was coming in to, you know, go right. after and arrest people and pull them away from their families. Hey, that's coach Jimmy. He's been here a long time and he's trying to take care of the violent crime here. So I didn't do the job all myself. I had a wonderful team. I had a lot of people that were, that were, singularly minded and singularly focused to make that happen, but it made a difference. We were committed to the community. We were involved in the community. We weren't outsiders. We weren't viewed as, hey, they're just coming in to police and then leave. And then we went hard after the gangs. We used RICO, which we talked about earlier, which was what we used against the mob in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. We then started using RICO against the violent street gangs. You go after the head of the snake now. You cut it off. You take out the captains. You take out the upper echelon guys. And then what happens then? Well, you know, it. I guess, you know, criminality is like water. I think Sun Tzu famously said that, right? Like, like it'll, it'll go wherever there's an opportunity. So if you do take care of this, there are going to be other people that fill the void. And then that, we'll leave that to the sociologists and the, and the folks that can deal with the socioeconomic issues. But that's how we dealt with things in, in Newburgh at that time. And it's, it's still, I live 2.5 miles from the epicenter of where all those gang takedowns were. You talked about the 78. That's 2.5 miles from my house right now. Wow. Um, okay. So, uh, so, you know, you live this, not just work this. Um, and so you know, clearly you, you see, you, you see the problem of it at the street level in the community. The mafia is this thing for most people. First of all, you know, you know, how prevalent is La Cosa Nostra today and how, you know, the sophisticated mafioso, uh, you know, is, is it really a thing here much anymore? But what's a lot more of a reality to, to people on the streets are criminal gangs. And, you know, again, for a lot of people that you think of gang activity and, you know, you just think of a few, you know, a few pockets of it in certain cities in America. Coming from you, an expert, um, and having worked with the FBI, how pervasive it are criminal gangs and is gang culture in America uh, as a whole? Well, you know, you, you, you look at it from this perspective, and I just mentioned every one of us wants to be part of something bigger than ourselves. And if a young kid, whether it's a young Italian kid in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn, or a young African-American or Latino kid on, you know, Liberty Street in Newburgh, New York, they want to be part of something bigger than themselves. And if they don't find it before the gangs find them, right, they will end up being swallowed up by that. Now, 
when you talk about the mafia and, 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 and I think, you know, you watch The Godfather, you watch Donnie Brasco, you watch, you know, Wise Guy, the television show, you watch Casino, you watch Goodfellas. The, the mob has been romanticized. And in some yes. ways, shows like um, The Wire, you know, which was very well done, um, kind of yes. romanticized the narco-trafficking street gangs in, in, in Baltimore. Um, and, and that's a problem because the young kids look at those shows and they get swept up in that and they go, oh, how cool is that? You know, I, I want to be Don Corleone or I want to be Rizzo or I want to be this guy, this character in this, you know, in this, in this show about drug trafficking. It's, it is a difficult thing to do in our, in our country and in our, in our world to figure out ways to prevent that from happening because Criminal organizations are constantly being backfilled. And when you take one out, if you, if, you, if, you, if you take out a big chunk of the New York City mob, something is gonna fill the vacuum. Hmm. Something is gonna fill the void. Some opportunistic criminal enterprise is going to move into that void and say, hey, they're out of the garment industry. Hey, they're out of construction. Hey, they don't have the politicians in Albany in their pocket now. Or, hey, they don't have that corner right there on the corner of, uh, you know, walk and don't walk. Um, let's take over that, that, that corner because criminality is never going to go away. You know, New York City did a great job. The NYPD, of course, it's changing now. But mm -hmm. they did a great job in the 90s and the 2000s and the 2010s in driving crime down to almost imperceptible levels. You will never drive it down to zero. The right. thought that you're going to make it, you know, non-existent is it's, 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 it's not possible. Evil exists. You have to keep it at, at and I hate to use the term tolerable because nobody wants to tolerate crime, but you have to drive it down as far as you can. And you have to put criminals on notice that you're coming for them. And I got to tell you, Lawrence, to wrap this up, my soliloquy, this is what I fear right now with this demonization of police and this anti-cop rhetoric and this, hey, every policing methodology from rubber bullets and tear gas to quell riots to stop, question, and frisk and broken windows theory of policing, all of those things are racist. Let's do away with them. We are, we are experiencing right now not just a slight uptick in New York, and New York is emblematic of the country. We are, we are, we are seeing, we're experiencing a large uptick in violent crime. It's going to get worse. Look, some of it is the natural ebbs and flows, the sine wave, cosine wave of criminality. I get that. Mm -hmm. But when you allow people to do what's going on right now, the riots, the looting, the anarchy, the lawlessness, it emboldens them. And I believe in compassionate complete policing. I believe in community policing. Mm -hmm. I believe that police reforms are necessary but I lament the fact that a lot of the good things that we did to make neighborhoods safer. And there was a recent poll by Gallup. Mm -hmm. Gallup is not some fly by night pollster, right? Right. Gallup, 81% of African-Americans believe that there should be the same amount or more police in their neighborhoods. 81%. But we have a small crew of people right now that are driving this conversation and they're, they're driving the agenda. And what I fear is a lot of the gains that we made in the, in the 90s and the 2000s and 2010s 
going to be wiped out. Yeah, well, a lot of people driving the agenda um, aren't living in areas where there's a lot of crime. So, you know, um, but as you say, things happen in cycles and, you know, it's starting to look like New York in the, uh, you know, in the 70s uh, and uh, early 80s. So let's see what happens. But, um, you know, to segue, you go from that, which is you could spend a lifetime kind of doing what you were doing. It's a whole career, um, organized crime, street gangs. You then, <laughs> you then move on uh, and, and you're involved uh, with the FBI's elite counter-terror unit, the, the hostage rescue team. Now, on the surface, many assume that HRT um, only handles hostage scenarios, right? Um, ergo, it's Monica, right? Hostage rescue. <laughs> However, uh, the role goes much deeper. I want to I quote someone, uh, someone for you here. Um, so the HRT was originally conceived uh, after FBI uh, Director William Webster witnessed a demonstration by the U.S. Army's Delta Force. And when Webster reviewed the equipment used by Delta, uh, he noticed that there were no handcuffs. And so when, you know, he acquired about why there were no, you know, handcuffs as part of the equipment, and a Delta operator replied, we put two rounds in their forehead. The dead don't need handcuffs. So, you know, ergo, uh, we, we have um, uh, Webster, Director Webster, for realizing that, wait a second, the FBI needs counter-terrorist uh, units. Can you describe um, from the inside view what is HRT's mission and, and what does it do? So firstly, and, and, and you brought up Director Webster and I have a, a great affinity for him. Um, you know, the FBI has been around since 1908, 112 years. And in that 112 years, there have only been eight Senate confirmed FBI directors. Now, wow. yeah, eight. I served under four of them and you're going to scratch your head and you're going to go, Jimmy, how's that possible? <laughs> How old is Jimmy? <laughs> there were, there were interim directors and there were acting directors, but there were only okay. eight in the Bureau's history. And you have to keep in mind, 48 years of that 112 year history, one guy, J. Edgar Hoover, who was a, you know, 29-year-old man in 1924 when he took over the FBI, which back then was the Bureau of Investigation, and led it until his death in 1972. So he, wow. he handled 48 years of that. But I served under four. I came in under Director Sessions, Judge Sessions. Okay. Then there was Director Free, Louis Free. Um, and, and then uh, there was a 12-year term, which was two years longer than the 10-year term that was allowable at the time. For, uh, for, for Director Mueller. And finally, my last two years in the Bureau were under James Comey. James Comey was only director for three years, eight months, and five days or something like that. But I, had, I served under him for two years. Okay. So to your point, Judge Webster was a revered FBI director, one of the only eight men, when you think about this, I mean, Director Ray is now the eighth, only eight men in the Bureau's history um, and in 1983, he recognized there was a problem. And what was the problem? Well, we had just lived through the 1972 Munich Olympics. And 
you know, I think your listeners, because they're probably a savvy crew, will, will recognize and remember that Germany, after World War II, was not allowed to have a military. So they essentially had these border patrol or border guard people that kind of did security for them. And in 1972, we know the Palestinian terrorists killed a bunch of Jewish athletes. It was a debacle that played out on live television. Well, as a result of that, Germany formed a group, which is really the, I think you could argue that the British with the special air service might have a, a counter to this, but the German Grenchen Grouper Niener, the GSG-9, was really the, 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 the first counter-terrorist group that was formed and became an amazing group in teaching and training. And it was a response to the 72 Olympics. Okay. So Judge Webster asked this question to Delta Force and to, you know, the, in, in, of course, this is, this is 1983, so it's a Ronald Reagan administration. Hey, we have the Olympics coming in 84. 11 years ago, we all witnessed a horrific tragedy. How are we going to handle that? And people in the cabinet scratched their head and said, well, we'll use our new Delta Force, or we'll use the SEALs, or we'll use Army Rangers, or we'll use uh, Marine Force Recon. And then somebody else timidly raised their hand and said, uh, but sir, uh, there's this thing called posse comitatus. We can't use the military to conduct law enforcement you know, uh, jobs or, or roles. And so the idea came up to put together a civilian law enforcement team that was on the scale of Delta, SEAL Team 6, you know, the Rangers, that's a, and that was the birth of the hostage rescue team. Um, I was an FBI agent for 25 years, Lawrence. Four of those years were spent as a assaulter on Echo Team, on Blue Assault, on the FBI's hostage rescue team, of which 52 men served when I was there in the 90s, 52 men served in the 80s when the team finally came online in 1984, and 52 men serve on it now. One of my proudest associations is with the FBI's hostage rescue team. Great group of people, great mission. Wow. Um, and so um, is it, okay, so, and again, just to clarify, so, Beyond hostage rescue, you know, we're talking counter-terror here. Mm-hmm. What else, what else does, uh, does HRT get into? So when, when, the, when the team was formed back in 1983, what are we going to call it? We can't call it Delta Force for <laughs> civilian purposes, right. or we can't call it SEAL Team 6, but only used domestically. So how are we going to, what are we going to call it? Gotcha. When they came up with the hostage rescue team. You are correct. That is not the only mission. The mission, the scope and the mission of the team is, is, is far reaching and, and, and includes many different things. High risk arrests, renditions overseas, and a lot of things that are, you know, that, 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 are, that, are, that, are, that are classified and that the team, you know, you, you can't talk about those things. But the bottom line is this, the mission has evolved. And when the team was first, first started, it was, okay, if a group of terrorists, wherever they come from, right. domestic, international, decides to take hostages at the 84 Olympics, we're going to go get them. And we're going to do it with the efficiency and the professionalism and the expertise of the military counterterrorism teams. But the mission has evolved. 
Yes, that's important. But now you look at things like active shooters and, you right. know, how do you respond to those? You look at things like renditions overseas where you grab a terrorist in international waters or, or overseas and you've got to go get them. And during the global war on terror, right? So which began in 2001 on 9-11. Right. And it's still ongoing to this day, no matter what we call it. The FBI's hostage rescue team has been deployed, attached to Joint Special Operations Command JSOC units like the SEALs and Delta Force and the Green Berets um, and the Rangers to do law enforcement missions. And people are going to scratch their head and go, well, Jimmy, what the hell would a domestic counterterrorism team be doing in Afghanistan and Iraq? Well, what happens is when you've got high-speed units like the Rangers and Delta Force and the SEALs and, and the Green Berets, right. and they're going in to snatch a high-value target at an HVT, you need people with the experience to work on interrogations, to find out information, to take fingerprints in the field, to take DNA swabbings. And you got to remember, in 2001, 2002, taking DNA in a combat zone was something that was unfathomable. It was like, we didn't have a protocol for that. So you want to attach an FBI agent to those high-speed teams that are going out to do those jobs. Interesting. But you need people that can keep up. You need people with a level of fitness. You need people that have parachuting expertise, fast roping expertise, that can be in austere environments and are handy with a, with a weapon. So that's why the FBI's HRT was then used to not, I don't want to say augment because it wasn't an equal thing, but they were, they were added as embeds. They were embedded with JSOC units during the global war on terror. And they still are to this day. And, and so you went there three times uh, as part of HRT. Yes. It's just, um, yeah, fascinating because yeah, again, to, to most people, you, you can't square that circle. Why, you know, why is FBI, HRT, hostage rescue, counterterrorism going out into Afghanistan? So it's, it, it, yeah, absolutely. Wild. So actually, you know, SWAT, let's, let's talk about that for a moment because you become senior team leader uh, for the uh, New York SWAT team, uh, FBI's New York SWAT team. I want to run some stats by you. And th- this actually plays into kind of what you were alluding to, kind of where things are headed and, and where things were and, you know, when it comes to policing. But in 1964, the first SWAT team was formed in Los Angeles. Uh, and then a decade later, by, by 1975, so within that 10, 11-year period, you have about 500 SWAT teams nationwide. By 1999, all 50 states have SWAT teams. And today, 90% of U.S. cities over 50,000 population have SWAT teams. And 80% of cities with 25 to 50,000 population have SWAT teams. So a lot of SWAT teams out there. Um, the FBI has 56 SWAT teams attached, I guess, to each, uh, each FBI office around the country. So what, you know, what, is going, what would you say change what happened after 64 till till now 
um, or in that period up till 1999, call it, right? In, in those, what is that, 35 years? Um, what changed in the criminal landscape um, beginning in the mid-60s that led to this just explosion for SWAT teams? And by the way, define for our audience what a SWAT team is. All right, you want to go there? I mean, yeah. I, I, let's, let's dance. First of all, I'm not used to podcasters the typical podcasters that I appear with um, being this prepared and knowing as much about my business as I do. But if you want to go down this route of dropping some historical knowledge, let's go there. Let's do it. The, a SWAT team is a special weapons and tactics team. And you are correct. You just gave the timeline, but I'm going to put an exclamation point on it. Okay. August 1st of 1966. I was about 18 months old at the time. Okay. A young, disenfranchised, disenchanted former Marine by the name of Charles Whitman killed his mother and then climbed the clock tower right. during afternoon classes at the University of Texas in Austin. He took a hunting rifle and a pistol, and I believe, and this is the part I might be sketchy on, he killed 12 or 13 co-eds and wounded a number of others. And at the time, the police response was a campus police officer and a local cop, both armed with wheel guns. So both armed with revolvers who climbed the stairs to the clock tower and interdicted Mr. Whitman. Now, after that, after that shooting, and some people would call that the genesis of mass shootings in the United States. Look, we've had people that were killed in large numbers prior to that, but that really was, and Lawrence, I'm going to use this term because I can, that was the seminal moment for SWAT in the United States. Okay. We looked at it and we said, when I say we, law enforcement writ large, what is our response to something like that? A committed gunman armed with more weapons than we have, higher capacity weapons that we have, weapons right. with a higher muzzle velocity or can shoot farther than what we have. What is our response? You talk about 66. We gave it a hard look and we started the evolution into, we need to put together teams with special training, special tactics, special weapons, ergo SWAT. Then 72 happens, the Munich Olympics. Then in the early 70s, the FBI suffers, you know, two FBI agents, um, Williams and Kohler, were executed out at, uh, what, what is it, uh, Wounded Knee. Right. Um, at the American Indian Movement, um, shot two and killed two FBI agents. And the first Bureau SWAT teams, I believe that was 75, were dispatched there again because you can't send regular agents with six shot revolvers out there to confront people that had, you know, I hate to use the term assault weapons, but they had long guns and they had, you know, high capacity magazines and it was a different threat. Fast forward to where we are now, and I'm not skipping over purposely the 80s and the 90s, which you referenced, and people take issue with this notion of the militarization of police. Well, look, even if it happens once every four years or five years or three years or 10 years, everybody remembers 
the North Hollywood shootout, which happened in 93 or 94, I believe, where two guys wearing yes. complete body armor and long weapons just went down mowing people down and the cops were outgunned. Yeah. How about San Bernardino where the two terrorists went in and shot up a shot up a building, killed a bunch of people and then came out and were driving around with heavy weaponry and the cops have to respond. I understand optics and I hate to use that term. My wife gets on me on it about all the time because it's overused. I understand that law enforcement doesn't want to present this picture, this optic of an occupying army. But at the same token, we're sending young men and young women into harm's way. We never know when this is gonna happen. It could happen today, could happen tomorrow, it could happen 10 years from now. But bad things happen. And people, bad guys that are well-armed, the United States is 327 million people. There are 300 plus million firearms in their hands. The vast majority are in the hands of law-abiding citizens that, that you want them to be able to exercise their Second Amendment rights. But a large amount are in the hands of criminals who are going to do us harm. And as we've seen now, I mean, I look at just my short period of time, 2016 to now with CNN, how many crime scenes of mass shootings that I've been to with the network. I went to... I went to Las Vegas when the Vegas shooter, Stephen Paddock, killed 58 or 59 people out there. I went to Parkland, Florida, when Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School was shot up by a disgruntled former student on Valentine's Day in 2019. I went to Santa Fe at the site of a school shooting. I've been to a number of those. Now, look, even of recent, I mean, the last one that I went to, I believe, was the Walmart shooting in El Paso over a year ago. And look, we've got the pandemic going on. We've got a lot of other things, but these things are going to happen again. They're not going, to, we're not going to mitigate them by just hoping and praying and put up gun-free zone signs. So the bottom line is we have to have our police officers, our law enforcement officers prepared to meet the threat. Yes, the threat doesn't occur every day, but when it does, it goes after the least of us, it goes after our children or the elderly or people that are unarmed or ill-equipped to be able to deal with it. So the, 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 the SWAT, I guess, the, the, the SWAT, uh, I don't even know what the, what, the, what the word would be, the evolution, I guess, of SWAT. Yes, you have highly trained teams. Yes, the FBI has 56 of them in the 56 field divisions, and then they have HRT. Yes, New York City Police Department, a department of 36,000 cops, has ESU, the Emergency Service Unit. Yes, the New York State Police has MRT, the Mobile Response Team. Yes, even local police departments have them. But to suggest that we don't need them or that they send the wrong message or that the optics are just not palatable to us, it's not living in the real world. And in law enforcement, we can look at things the way we wish they were, but we got to deal with the real world, Lawrence. That we do, that we do. Um, Jimmy, there's so many other things I want to talk about, and I know we're uh, button up against time here, so I have one, so one more question for you. Sure. Um, so, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to operate, if, so here's the thing, like, if you're doing this as part of the military, 
right? If you're, if you're a special operator, if you're in the SEALs, if you're in uh, Delta, right? If you're, if you're with the Rangers um, and you're doing direct action uh, and you're, you're breaching and, you, and you're, you're taking people out, right? Or you're taking them for interrogation. Um, but whatever the case may be, you're, you're operating in a war zone and you have a lot more latitude to do what needs to be done. Your rules of engagement are different. But from the picture you just painted and the reality of the, you know, the landscape in which we live, um, <laughs> there's war out on the streets, right? And we have, but we have different rules of engagement. So uh, the question I have is, it's gotta be a much harder job to be uh, law enforcement or let's just stick with SWAT for a moment. If you're gonna be in special weapons and tactics, you're gonna be uh, HRT. Um, if, if you're gonna be operating here domestically, I mean, you, you know, if you do one thing like out of the, if you color outside the lines, you know, you're, you're, you're done. And the optics are going to come get you. The optics ain't operating in, in Afghanistan for the most part. So what kind of person does it take to operate and deal with that level? Of, I don't know if anyone could deal with that level of stress, but um, what, what kind of individual do you look for to be a part of HRT, uh, to be a part of a SWAT team, what kind of characteristics and qualities and traits does it take to make up that kind of individual? Because it can't be easy to find. You just, you, you just, you set me up perfectly with, you know, discussing rules of engagement and understanding, you know, a lot of people that come into the FBI are former military folks. I mean, from the Marine Corps, the army, the Navy, the air force. And that's okay. a good thing. We're, we're usually attracted to the same type of things. Law enforcement folks are, you know, attracted to the military and the military folks are attracted to law enforcement and the rules of engagement are different. Um, there's a reason that in the military, you have a weapon with full automatic and you, and you do things like lay down, suppress a fire. You can't go into Newburgh, New York and lay down, suppress a fire. <laughs> that's, that, that, that's not a law enforcement action. Every round matters and counts. And look, in, in the military, there are war crimes in the military, there is unacceptable collateral damage and yes. there is, is, you know, there are, there are people that are rightly charged with, you know, the improper use of force or, or war crimes for, for doing that in theater. Very different here because you're judged to a different standard, makes it so much more difficult where you have to account for every single round. Look what's going on right now in Kenosha, Wisconsin. One of the things that the cop that fired the seven shots into Jacob Blake is being blasted for is because he fired into a car where the man's kids were. Now, look, I will argue from the other side and say Jacob Blake caused that to happen. He was not, he was non, uh, uh, non-compliant. He was violent. He was impervious to the employment of a taser. He fought the police officers and he went to the vehicle where he had a weapon, a knife, he caused that. But from a law enforcement perspective, you've got to be always considering what your backdrop is and, and where other people are. And you've got to make those, unfortunately, those, those life and death in extremis, which is Latin for at the point of death, decisions mm -hmm. in a nanosecond. So when you ask me, 
how did I view interviews with prospective SWAT agents in the FBI or prospective HRT operators? Here's how I did. One of the first things that we would ask, and I'm sure it's probably still consistent today, they'll ask it in different ways, but you would ask a prospective applicant, you know, name a situation that you were ever in where you were afraid. And of course, you get the big guy that comes in and the muscles are rippling and he's all, he's all shredded up and he's been in the weight room and he's been on the FBI for a couple of years and he made one case and he goes, never happened, not me, I've never been afraid. And you'd go, next, thank you. Interesting. Enjoy your trip back to your office because fear is a normal condition. It's like I've been afraid a gazillion times in my life. Courage is not the absence of fear. It's the mastery of it. And what we're looking for is somebody that says, I've been afraid. I've been afraid. Well, explain to us that situation. How did you react? What happened? Because I've been afraid. I've been afraid on any arrests that I ever went out on where I was going after a committed felon that was armed and dangerous and did not want to have their, their liberty deprived. They didn't want to be taken in to face justice. Sure. But the difference is what separates the really good operators from the, the shitty ones is the fact that you control your fear and you use your fear. You harness that to, to heighten your senses and to be better at what you do. So arrogance and hubris, two things that are huge strikes that we would never take you. Right. Humility, that's something that you're looking for. You're looking for talent with humility. It's got to be... You know, it's got to be a nice blend there. You know, you, 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 you want to find people that, that are confident. And there's a difference between confidence and arrogance. I want confidence. I want people that know I'm good at this. I work hard at this. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get this job done. But you also want them to be imbued with humility. And so that's a, that's a delicate needle to thread that some people don't. Um, and, and then you really just want to find out compatibility. Because okay. one of the big things is, you know, when you're in HRT, you know, it's like combat. There's two or three minutes of just frenetic, you know, panicked action followed by months and months and months of just dreary doldrums and, and boredom. So is this going to be a person that I'm going to, you know, want to be around? And it's not based on personalities and it's not based on, well, you're a cool kid and you're not a cool kid, but is this a team player? Is this somebody that is going to be part of a group, part of a team, part of a part of an organization and work towards a common goal? Or is this going to be somebody that needs to be babysat? Somebody that whines and complains? Those are things where you look at and you say, oh, I didn't know that. I thought you had to shoot great and jump over tall buildings and beat people up with your bare fist. Well, no, we want physical specimens. Right. More importantly, we want judgment, character, compatibility. Very interesting. Very interesting. And the mastery of fear. Um, wow. I tell you what, um, Jimmy, there, there are so many other things I, I want to talk to you about. And you know, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about um, was leadership. I really want to get into that with you. So, have but I know, back. yeah, I, I, you know, got to have you back on so we can really dig into, you know, a lot of the cerebral stuff um, because now that we have a, you know, an understanding of the, you know, we have a lay of the land, we have situational awareness around these, you know, 
SWAT, HRT, organized crime. We got a bit of a sense. Okay, what does leadership look like in th on those, under those circumstances? Because if you got leadership in the corporate world, what's the worst that could happen? You get fired. But leadership in your world, again, we're talking you know life or death situations here. So I got to have you back on, man. I I look forward to it, uh, and I will commit to to doing that with you. And uh, we'll leave we'll leave the listeners with a teaser because. I get asked all the time when I do public speaking about, Jimmy, what's the greatest leadership quote that you've ever heard? And, and if you go online and you Google leadership quotes, mm -hmm. it'll come back with a 16 gazillion with a G, <laughs> you know, number of, of, of the search engine will basically start smoking with, with, with great quotes. I'm going to leave it with you. It's this one. It is, it was said by the 34th president of the United States. Okay. Um, he was graduate of West Point's class of 1915 that some people argue might have been the, the greatest class of all time at West Point. It was, they call it the class that the stars fell on. They were, let me see if I can get these numbers straight. They were the last two five-star generals in the United States military. They were two four-stars, seven three-stars, 24 two-stars, and 24 one-stars. 59 out of the 168 graduates of that class reached the rank of general officer. And the person I'm speaking about is Dwight David Eisenhower, the leader of the, the invasion of Normandy and, and, and the supreme allied commander of, of allied troops during World War II. And here's the quote, the greatest leadership quote of all time. Okay. Leadership is the art of getting someone else to do something you need done for the mission because they want to do it. Amazing. The, the art of getting someone else to do something you need done because he or she wants to do it. At, show me a better leadership quote. If you can find it, I'll certainly take a look <laughs> at it, but I'll probably dismiss it. There's some powerful nuance there. And I'm going to actually, next time we speak, uh, I'm going to dig into that nuance because there's a subtlety there, which is very powerful. Uh, so I dig that quote. That's, that's strong. <laughs> Very strong. Definitely up there. Might be number one. We'll see. I'll come back at you on the next one with my top one, but uh, looking forward to it. Uh, so Jimmy, where can our audience uh, find out more about uh, yourself and, you know, really your wealth of knowledge on, on some of these topics like counterterror and uh, law enforcement issues? Where, where can our uh, listeners learn more? I appreciate that. You can, uh, you can certainly follow me on Twitter and it's at James A. Galliano and that's J-A-M-E-S-A, which is my middle initial and my last name Galliano, which is G-A-G-L-I-A-N-O at Twitter. And I have a website, which is just jamesagalliano.com. And you can, uh, you can certainly go there and, um, and, and connect with me there if you need to, but I really appreciate that. Thanks for letting me uh, share that. Uh, listen, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure, Jimmy. Uh, thank you for your service. Uh, honor having you on the show and look forward to the next episode. Look forward to it too.